0: Good morning. We're glad you're here. I uh, want to welcome our guests, those who are uh, maybe looking for a church home and are with us for the first time or among the first few visits. Uh, I want to just tell you that we're glad you're here. Um, I hope that you you experience God today. That's our goal. I hope that you uh, see a people of God that are pretty um, normal, um, usual, I mean average even, if that is such a thing. I mean just regular folk. Uh, we're not. This isn't a performance. That wasn't a performance. This isn't a speech. Uh, we uh, aim to experience the Lord each week. So, uh, if you're with us this morning, I hope that you do that. And um, I'm uh, grateful, thankful that you're here. I just. Uh, I don't have a uh, Father's Day sermon prepared this morning. We have theme and theme sermons every now and again, but we usually don't. Um, it's not against the notion of uh, a holiday it's just uh, we're moving through the word uh, verse by verse chapter by chapter book by book and sometimes that lines up with a holiday usually not um, but i just had a thought this morning i was um i opened up my email and had an email from my daughter she's in berlin had a facebook message from my son who's in the other side of the world also in another place and um Daniel's in bed, I've got my one in bed, <laughs> nothing uh, exotic about that, and then a couple kids on the other side of the world, but they were saying it, Happy Father's Day, and just uh, really sweet thoughts, and uh, I thought, man, I, I miss them because I really enjoy them. I thought, I really enjoy my kids, golly, and then I thought, man, I had that from my dad too, and um, I think if you're here this morning, if you're a father, if you want to be a father, uh, or if you were a father, uh, hopefully you're not were a father, you may be a grandfather or something like that at at this point, uh, that this morning that maybe you can connect to the idea of in addition to bringing our children up in faith, something else that we can give them that's really special is to enjoy them. You know when you're enjoyed, contrast it with when you're just tolerated. And man, we have little human beings that are being raised up in our very homes that have Amazing personalities that are just awesome little people. What a treasure we have. I just encourage our dads this morning to give them that gift. And even if you didn't have it, doesn't mean you can't be it. You can enjoy your kids. Let's pray. God, I pray for our dads in here this morning. I just pray for that uh, treasure of um, uh, enjoying and being enjoyed. Lord, and thankfully that we have an amazing father that truly enjoys us, that you don't tolerate us, that you're not a cosmic killjoy that just wants to mash us like a bunch of worms, but you actually are a good father. Oh man, I hope that, Lord, I hope that inspires and moves us to really connect to our children and to really know them and to uh, just spend time with them and enjoy their personalities, enjoy who they are, who they are and who they're becoming also. And um, I just pray that for our, our fathers in the room this morning and those fathers-to-be. Lord, also this morning, I want to pray for another church in our community. I want to lift up Van Sickle Baptist Church and Roger Ratliff and uh, just uh, realizing that he is has um, um, a widower at this point and he has lost his wife uh, somewhat recently. Lord, I we just want to lift him up personally this morning and pray that you would bless him. I pray that he is... Uh, preparing to preach this morning and that is fueled by worship, uh, that may even be um, conditioned by um, the absence of his spouse of so many years, and uh, Lord, that you would use that to bring a potent word and a a people-equipping word and a gospel-revealing word and a God-disclosing word, that you would use that in his life. to uh, equip the saints, Lord. I pray for the saints at Vansicle, Lord. We pray for uh, uh, faith. We pray for um, maturity. We pray for faithfulness, Lord. We pray for responsiveness to things that you put in front of them, Lord. We pray that you would uh, grow uh, Vansickle, so that they would be salty, bright, and aromatic in our community, in workplaces, in neighborhoods, uh, in friendships and relationships, Lord, that you would uh, be great uh, displayed through them thankful for the opportunity to lift them up this morning Lord I pray for these next few minutes of how we spend uh, our time Lord I pray that you would be clear um, in a uh, on a Sunday that will will require uh, some some real thought I pray that the Holy Spirit would uh, impact our minds and uh, quicken them and awaken them and galvanize them to really hear uh, from you and hear our, and see some clarity on a really difficult issue. Lord, I uh, just entrust this time to you and pray that you would use it. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Turn to Job chapter 19. The title of this morning's message is God's Purpose in Darkness. I could add God's great purpose in darkness. Last week we really met two uh, ideas, two thoughts. Uh, One was that good things happen to good people and bad things happen to bad. That's the first and the second is that if you'll just seek God, he's going to make it all better. Uh, sadly, those are things that could be on a, um, on a little poster or on a little uh, placard or something in somebody's cubicle or in somebody's kitchen. Uh, but in this context, in the context of these three friends, a man named Eliphaz, a man named Bildad, and a man named Zophar speaking to Job, they were not true. These guys, basically, these supposed friends told Job, good things happen to good people and bad things happen to bad people, and some bad stuff's happening to you, so you must be bad. But that wasn't true. We know otherwise. We had a view into the divine counsel. They also told him that, hey, if you'll just seek God and make it, he's going to make it all better. If you'll seek God, and let's distinguish also, confess to your wrongdoing, he's just going to fix all this and make it all better. Job is beaten and bruised and now he's heckled, berated, and abused by bad counsel from those who are closest to him. These three air quotes friends. Yet this man holds fast to his integrity, maintaining that he is blameless and he is righteous. Some terrible things have happened to this man, the finest son of the east is what the narrator calls him and God even spoke of Job saying that there's none like him on the face of the earth. He's a blameless and upright man who fears the Lord and turns away from evil. Some terrible things have happened to Job. Job chapter 19 in some ways is sort of a catalog of Job's experiences and what's happened to him. But I'd like to sort of recap before we get to 19. We're going to spend our morning in chapter 19, most of chapter 19, up into verses 20. Or up into verse 24. Uh, we might just shop, shop, stop shy of that in verse 22. But just to kind of recap of what has happened to Job. In chapter 1, he's lost his children. Seven sons and three daughters. He's lost his servants. He's lost his property. He's lost all his critters. He had thousands of critters. He's lost basically his kingdom. We believe that Job was what we might have called a micro-king in Edom. In chapter 2, he loses his health. He's covered with boils from the crown of his head to the sole of his feet, only one of which threatened to kill King Hezekiah. He's covered with him. In chapter 2, also, his wonderful wife encourages him to curse God and die. His spouse, his bride. In chapter 3, we hear him lamenting the day of his birth. Wishing that that day had been erased from the calendar. I wish I had never been born. In chapter 4 begins the onslaught of insults from these supposed friends. We're going to fast forward and parachute into chapter 19 and see if we can sort of pick up what Job has to say about what's happened to him. We're going to really in some way sort of parachute into what's described last week as the second series of dialogues just to check on Job. See how Job is doing. So let's climb in. My plan for this passage is I'd like to read uh, an excerpt. Um, I'll read the first three verses. Then I'll read verses 4 through 10. And then I'll read a couple of verses. And we're going to unpack as we go. And I'll kind of guide you through because I don't want you to get lost in it. I think we want to gather up some goods from this passage as it's going to be really helpful. Let's begin in chapter 19, verses 1 through 3. Then Job answered, he's speaking specifically to Bildad, but generally to all three of his supposed friends. Job answered and said, How long will you torment me and break me in pieces with words? These ten times you've cast reproach on me. Are you not ashamed to wrong me? He, he sort of gathers up what's happened to him at this point in regards to his friends. He says he's been insulted ten times. Now, I shared with you sort of the pattern of the dialogues last week. You have each of the friends speaking. As they speak, Job responds. That's the first series of dialogues. Um, Eliphaz speaks. Job responds. Bildad speaks. Job responds. Zophar speaks. Job responds. And we're embedded within the second series. And up to this point, there have been five speeches from his supposed friends and five responses. And he counts them as ten insults. What's interesting is he's basically saying you've actively insulted me by what you've said. And you've indirectly insulted me by not listening to me. Which is equally insulting when someone just won't even listen to you. He describes it as a physical Pain almost. Listen to what he says in verse 2. How long will you torment me and break me in pieces with words? There's an emotional pain that's being inflicted upon him right now, in addition to his physical pain that he's already experiencing that makes it truly unbearable for him. He feels physically and emotionally crushed by their words. I'm learning the, the power of words. <laughs> I mean, I'm 50 years old. I've been doing this 15 years, and I still have not mastered the notion of how to use words. I'm learning my most recent lesson just this week is that what you say to a straw man, I love beating up a straw man in the pulpit. A straw man is a, like an imaginary man, you know, a, a man that's nameless that you can, Paul did it in all of his letters almost, where he beats up a straw man. I love beating up straw man. But what you can say to a straw man, you can't say to a real man. Not lovingly. What you say to a straw man, you can't say to a daughter. You can't say to a son. Because those words can be crushing. Job is experiencing the crushing weight of the words that his friends have said to him. And in verse 3, he marvels that they're not embarrassed. These ten times you've cast reproach on me, and you are not ashamed to wrong me? Why are you not embarrassed for charging me with unsubstantiated crimes presumed only by my suffering, is basically what he's saying. In some ways, those three verses have sort of captured what his friends have done to him. They've crushed him. The next verses tell us what God has done to Job. There are ten things that we're going to draw out of these next passages, and I want you to look for them, and i help you gather them up as we go. Ten things that God has done to Job, beginning in verse 4. And even if it be true that I have erred, my error remains with myself. If indeed you magnify yourselves against me and make my disgrace an argument against me, know then that God has put me in the wrong and closed his net about me. So far, and even up to this point, Job has not somehow acknowledged some measure of sin, some issue that has led to his suffering. And he's not doing that here either. But he's saying that if he has erred, then it is within him, and it's between him and God. If he sinned up to this point, then it's erred, or it's, it's connected to God's response somehow. God is dealing with him somehow if he has erred. What's interesting is, uh, trying to make sense of what he's saying here, when he says, God has put me in the wrong. There's one passage that I read, or one translation that I read that said, God has perverted me. God has uh, made me a perversion, might be a good way to put that. But my favorite translation, one that really put it in perspective, Young's Literal Translation, which is a great resource for Bible study. said, you have turned me, God has turned me upside down. God has turned me upside down. Man, can anybody in here relate to that feeling of having been literally turned upside down? That's the first thing we can gather up from this passage is that God has turned him upside down. And then in verse 6, there's a second thing. It looks, it's kind of like a Hunger Games sort of connection. Uh, He has closed his net about me. The language that's used there is actually hunting language. He set a trap for me in some ways. He set a snare for me. He set a a net about me, and he's caught me in his net. So that's the second thing we can add. God has turned him upside down, and God has hunted and caught him. Look at the next verse in verse 7. He says, Behold, I cry out violence, but I'm not answered. I call for help, but there is no justice. Have I read all the way through verse 10? Help me. Did I read through verse ten, Christy? Okay. Let me re- let me come back. I want to read. Thank you, for, Christy. Will answer me in the middle of a sermon. Everybody else, is like, can I talk? <laughs> I'm going to read verses four through ten, and then I'll come back. And even if it be true that I've erred, my error remains with myself. If indeed you magnify yourselves against me and make my disgrace an argument against me, then know that God has put me in the wrong and has closed His net about me. I think I may have read that. If not, I've explained that. Behold, I cry out, violence. But I'm not, not answered. I call for help, but there's no justice. He has walled up my way so that I cannot pass. And he set darkness up upon my paths. He has stripped me of my glory and taken the crown from my head. He breaks me down on every side, and I am gone. And my hope, he is pulled up like a tree. Good. Okay, let's gather up the details in this passage. Beginning in verse, uh, I mentioned in verse 4 that God has turned him upside down. In verse 6, that he's been hunted, netted, and caught by God. And now in verse 7, he calls out to God, violence, but he's not answered. In some ways, what he's saying, he's crying foul. I call a foul here, but he's not answered. So we could add to things that God has done here. God has turned him upside down. God has caught him in his net. And God has not answered him. Anybody else ever had that feeling too? God, where in the world have you gone? You were right here, and you were so responsive, and I was seeing how you're moving, and I was seeing what you're up to, but all of a sudden now the rug has been pulled out from under me. I've been turned upside down, and I can't hear from you. God has not answered. And then in verse 8, He has walled up my way so that I cannot pass, and He has set darkness upon my paths. God has walled up his way as a way of describing. He has trapped him in in his life. He feels walled in in his life. He has no way out or around. His path, he describes, is truly darkness. So we can add to the list. a fourth thing is that God has blocked his path. Proverbs 4, verses 18 and 19 says, The path of the righteous is like the light of dawn which shines brighter and brighter until full day. The way of the wicked, though, is like deep darkness. They do not know over what they stumble. That's what he's experiencing, though he's not wicked. You can understand why he's crying, foul! Violence! Where is your justice? What has happened here? Let's look at verse 9 and gather up the next thing. He stripped... From me, my glory, and taken the crown from my head. When Job is speaking of his glory stripped, he's speaking of his former glory as a micro king of Edom. He's been stripped of that role and that place and that power and that influence that he had. His glory as a father also has been stripped. His glory as a master of many servants has been stripped. The glory is gone, and he's worse than a servant. You'll see in a moment. In fact, his servants even. Ignore him. So we can add to the list that God stripped him of his glory. Let's look at verse 10. He breaks me down on every side and I am gone. And my hope he has pulled up like a tree. We can add to the list there that he has uprooted Job's hope like a tree. I have uh, or had a number of little bonsai trees. I love little bonsai trees. I don't know why. I've always liked it. They look like a little bitty tree because that's what they are, but they, I think it's just kind of cool, a little miniature tree. And I let a couple of them die last year because I didn't water them. And I was so profoundly sad, and I'm still profoundly sad when I see their little carcass. One of, the, one of them's little carcasses in our, 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 our washroom, and it just sits there in the window pane, and it's a reminder that I failed him. I starved him of water, and he died. <laughs> and it just breaks my heart. My Father's Day gift from Christy, was, or from the kids via Christy, was another replacement for that tree. But it's still sad. think about how sad it is to envision this beautiful tree that's been uprooted from its roots. Where the roots lie inches away from the soil and the nutrients and the water that it needs to survive. But it's going to die. That sadness, that hopelessness is what Job is experiencing. I'm inches away from nutrients. But here I know that I'm going to dry up and die Man, it's a profound sadness. We can add to the list of things that God has done is that God uprooted his hope. Let's look at the next couple of verses, verses 11 and 12. He's kindled kindled his wrath against me and counts me as his adversary. His troops come on together and they have cast up their siege ramp against me and encamp around my tent. God kindles his anger against Job and treats him like an enemy. It's interesting that in Job, in Hebrew, Job's name is actually related to the word for enemy. It's no coincidence I think his name is Job. I thought all along it'd be cool if maybe a product of this sermon series that someone would name their child Job. I still think that would be kind of cool. I don't know why we're afraid of that. We're going to sort of set them off the cor- on the course of having a really difficult life. But interestingly enough, the name actually means in Hebrew, enemy. And that's why he's being treated as an enemy. Of God, and in verse twelve, he describes this environment as troops come on together. God's troops—they've cast up their siege ramp against me and encamp around my tent. He feels like he's being surrounded by God's troops. When you're in a defensive position, in a in a uh, in harm's way, in a in a dangerous situation, the defensive position, in some ways, is the places where you find refuge. It might be a fighting hole that you dug and you climb down in there and you have a little moment there where you can sleep and you can eat some you know, MREs and stuff like that. And you have a little moment of refuge. And uh, a version of that is a tent. I guess maybe a situation where there's not an artillery threat and you don't need to dig a hole you can climb in a tent. And it's a place of refuge while you're in harm's way. And Job is saying, I don't even have that. I can't even find refuge in my own tent because it's surrounded by God's Troops. So we could add to this list that is God has treated him like an enemy and God has him surrounded. Let's look at verse 13 through 16. He has put my brothers far from me, and those who knew me are wholly estranged from me. My relatives have failed me. My close friends have forgotten me. The guests in my house and my maidservants count me as a stranger. I have become a foreigner in their eyes. I call to my servant, but he gives no answer. I must plead with him with my mouth for mercy. Relatives, friends, and guests ignore him. The fathers or husbands or head of households in this room, I want you to just imagine what that would be like in your home if you actually had a guest in your home and your children in your home and your spouse in your home and they just ignored you. It's treated like you were just in the way. It's hard for us to imagine what that would be like with servants, but I'm just imagining how that might go down where Job, who previously for years had a, a Jeeves serving him, Jeeves Would you please indulge me with a glass of cold water? And Jeeves turns to him and says, get your own water. I got no more time for you. Who are you even anyway? Man, what a sadness. What a profound sadness. We could add to the list that God has made him estranged from those that he was closest to. And the last thing that we'll gather up from verses 17 through 19. My breath is strange to my wife, and I am a stench to the children of my own mother. That would be his brothers and sisters. Even young children despise me. When I rise, they talk against me. All my intimate friends abhor me, and those whom I loved have turned against me. What a profound sadness. We could add to the list of things that God has done to him is that God made him stink. I mean, like literally... Made him stink. His brothers and sisters say, you smell bad. Even his wife. There's this smell. Some of you that are single, you won't know this. But those of you that are married, you know this smell. The smell of your spouse's breath. It's a different smell. It doesn't even have to stink. It's just they have a smell. I know Christy's breath. She smells a certain way. And I smell a certain way. And it's not a stench. It's something that I've grown accustomed to in 23 years. This breath that's just... You have an aroma, a smell, and imagine for your spouse to say, I can't even smell your breath anymore. What a profound sadness. God has made him stink. He's made it to where children make fun of him. A few years ago when we were living in Fort Worth, I, uh, this would have been probably 2002, 2003, I had a goal that year, I have stupid Um, New Year's resolutions. I had a goal that year to run every day in that year, like to run, like jog, every day that year. And um, we lived in a neighborhood on Ryan Avenue where it was a pretty rough neighborhood we lived in, but just about a quarter mile away, it was a beautiful neighborhood. So I would run through the rough neighborhood to get to the beautiful neighborhood to run every day. And it was nearly every day that the kids in the neighborhood would heckle me in my in my immediate neighborhood, the little quarter mile that I needed to run to, the nice neighborhood, that the kids would heckle me. And they would say things like, run, Forrest, run. i mean, making fun of you. You know you're bumming when kids are making fun of you, right? And that's what's happened to Job. These ten terrible things have happened to him. God has turned him upside down. God has hunted and caught him. God has not answered him. God has blocked his path, that's the fourth. The fifth, God has stripped him of his glory. God has uprooted his hope. God has treated him like an enemy. God has him surrounded. God has made him estranged. And God has made him stink. In verse 20, it says, my bones stick to my skin and my flesh. This Job, he's just crying out here. My bones stick to my skin and my flesh, and I've escaped by the skin of my teeth. Have mercy on me. Have mercy on me, O you my friends. For the hand of God has touched me. Would you, like God, pursue me? Why are you not satisfied with my Flesh. He cries out for mercy. He asks his friends for pity at the very least. It has gotten so profoundly dark for Job. In addition to the things that his friends have done to him, I mean, there's some things that God has clearly done to him. It has gotten profoundly dark for Job. And we could even say that it has gotten profoundly evil for Job. Job has experienced profound evil. And we can use that word. Job used that word himself when he's speaking to his wife. She encourages him to curse God and die. And he responds, he says, shall we receive good from God and shall we not receive evil? And then it says, in all this, Job did not sin with his lips. It wasn't a misspoken word. He characterizes what he's gone through, the things that God even has done to him as evils as profound darkness. We spent a Wednesday night with our youth talking through the problem of evil. And I actually planned on it being part of a sermon today instead of a whole sermon. And I just felt like, you know what? Let's just stop down and deal with this problem. Let's spend this entire Sunday just dealing with the problem of evil because it's a problem. What do we do with this Question, this kind of darkness, how can we make sense of this kind of darkness? How can we reconcile this darkness with a God who's loving, who's present, and a good father all at the same time? It's a very, very important question. And I would just say this, if you haven't wrestled with this question before, then now's a good time. Because you're going to experience an evil. Or someone's close to you is going to experience a darkness and an evil. And you need to be able to guide them through that. And I believe this is an equipping kind of sermon. It was good enough for the youth on a Wednesday night, and they connected to it. So I thought it's good enough for their parents and their families to connect to this, because evil's coming if it hasn't come already. So here's the three things that we have to work with, the three issues that create a real dilemma. God is great, One. God is great. God is powerful. God is omnipotent. He is great is a summary statement of God is able to do anything and everything. Omnipotence, that's what it means. Omnipotence. God is great. That's the first thing. The second thing, God is good. Man, I hope we believe that this morning. He is a good God. But then the third thing that creates the dilemma, there's evil present in this world. We see it. We experience it. There's evil present in this world. God is great, God is good, and there's a presence of evil in this world that we can't ignore and we can't deny. So here's what I wrestled with this week. I wrestled with the notion, is this just a theological question? Is this a question for seminary professors and their students to discuss as we sit around drinking tea? You don't do that at seminary, but maybe you just imagine you might. Just drink some tea and pontificate on the problem of evil. <clears throat> is this a question for seminary classroom or a seminary discussion or for, sem- for seminarians? Or is it a grade A Christian experience question when some event, some news, some difficulty, some struggle calls into question the greatness and goodness of God? Where you say, man, you've been a good father to me. You've been a good God to me. How do I make sense of what I'm going through right now? How do I make sense of this event and this news and this difficulty and this struggle? It threatens potentially the relationship between said Christian, grade A Christian, and said God. So I thought, uh, seminary classroom or not, (laughs) the people of God need to think on this too people of God need to wrangle with this question. It is deeply relevant and worth a Sunday for at least a partial answer. Job, I think over the course of our time in Job, these next few weeks will bring into focus a really nice answer. But I thought this morning we would just consider a few possibilities. The word for this dilemma, this question, the problem of evil and the goodness and greatness of God is the word theodicy. That's sort of a parking place for the question so if you hear that word as you're reading something maybe you after this morning you'll look up theodicy and say "Man, I want to make sense of it I want to explore this more maybe that's a good thing to look up as theodicy here's the question how can God be truly good and sovereign over all that happens and yet allow evil so evident in this world you have to look at Job and ask that question how could God allow all these things and again if you haven't wrestled with that question you need to for your sake and for those you're walking with so you can help guide them through it. I'll give you, really, I think, four answers. The first two aren't so great. The third is moving in the direct, right direction. And the fourth, I think, is beautiful. Okay, so here's the first response. This would be the atheist response. Hopefully we can all recognize that this is not an appropriate response. But it is a response nonetheless. This from a man named Bertrand Russell. Bertrand Russell was a British philosopher, a logician. This guy, his job was like logic. Mathematician, I think those probably go together. He was a historian also, a writer. He was also a Nobel Prize winner. This guy was quite a guy, Bertrand Russell. Here's what he said. No one can believe in a good God if they've sat at the bedside of a dying child. No one can believe in a good God if they sat at the bedside of a dying child. In Bertrand's mind, the presence of evil at all is evidence that there is no God. What is a really sad and heartbreaking deal for Bertrand, if he might lose his own child or lose one child that he was acquainted with, is the death of that child would be utterly meaningless with that process, with that logic. Utterly meaningless. In fact, he said, this is a quote from Bertrand Russell, Brief and powerless is man's life. On him and all his race, the slow, sure dooms fall pitiless and dark. Wow, I bet he was fun to hang out with. Bertrand, let's go hang out, chat. I need to pick me up. You don't go call Bertrand. Man, this guy maintained that religion was little more than superstition and that it impeded knowledge, fostered fear and dependency. Okay, I've sat at the bedside of a child that was sick, and I saw no fear. A Christian child, I saw no fear. Christian child's parents, I saw no fear. Dependency, yes. What's wrong with dependency? For Bertrand, it was unthinkable. He couldn't conceptualize the notion of a good God and a dying child. That's a bad response, I think. Here's A response, moving in the right direction, but still something I would call bad, from a man named Harold Kushner. He was a rabbi. He wrote a book in 1981 that was titled, When Bad Things Happen to Good People. What's really interesting is this man dedicated the book, This Bad Things Happen to Good People, that was the New York Times bestseller for a number of weeks. He dedicated it to his 14-year-old son who died of a genetic disease. Okay, the man lived the question. We ought to consider seriously his approach because he lived the question. These answers or these questions are being dealt with, not by people that haven't dealt with difficulty. But this guy, Harold Kushner, had lost his own son. And here, this was his response. He basically said that the evil in the world, that either the evil in the world, let let me rephrase this. With the evil in the world, either God is sovereign and therefore not truly good, are he's truly good and not sovereign with regard to mankind and his circumstances? Okay, I'm going to say that again because I, as I prayed this morning, we've got some thinking to do this morning. This was his statement. With the evil in the world, either God is sovereign and therefore not truly good, or he's truly good and not sovereign with regard to mankind and his circumstances. And this guy, Harold Kushner, New York Times bestseller response is that he concluded that God is indeed good, but isn't really in control of this world or what happens in people's lives. Man, that's really sad. Why why pray? Why did we spend any time in prayer this morning? Why would you pray for anyone if that's the case, if God's in... Not in control, and God can't affect and influence the things that we pray about. He said that basically God does his best and is with people in their suffering, but he's not truly able to prevent it. (laughs) What a heartbreaking answer. He rejected, ultimately, the notion of a great God, an omnipotent God. His God was impotent. New York Times Bestseller. He would rather have an impotent God than a God who let his 14-year-old son die. Man, that's not a good an answer to the problem either. We're moving in the right direction now with a man named Augustine. Augustine was an ancient theologian. Um, he basically defined evil as simply the absence of good. That's the way he sort of processed the idea of evil. And he attributed evil to the fall of man in the garden. So this, what this does, and when you attribute evil to the fall of man in the garden, is that it takes any responsibility for evil from God and it puts it on man. All evil, all darkness. Remember, we're sort of using those words interchangeably. What we see profoundly in Job's life by this point is a result of fallen man living in a fallen world. So I don't know what in the world Augustine would do with the book of Job. I mean, you could blame the Sabaeans for their sin. Okay, that was the sin of Sabaeans. You could blame the Chaldeans. That's the sin of the Chaldeans. Maybe you could blame the meteorologist for not giving him a heads up about the wind that comes from four cardinal directions that folds the house in on his children. Must have been the meteorologist's fault. He's sinful. I don't know who in the world you're going to blame for fire of God falling from heaven. Um, That's not even like a natural catastrophe. That's just like, I've got no place for that. Augustine, what are you going to do with that? Is that the product of a fallen world? You could blame some of what Job is going through on the sin of Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. But I'm not sure what he's going to do with the fire from heaven. He's moving in the right direction, but I don't think he nails it yet. Let me take you to our last guy, a man named Charles Hodge. Charles Hodge, there's an interesting article on the Gospel Coalition website that identifies Charles Hodge as maybe the most influential theologian in the 19th century. He's long dead by this point. But Charles Hodge had an answer to the problem of evil that I think is profound, and I think it's equipping. So I want to encourage you. If you sort of kind of zone down, if this has kind of been a little heady for you. uh, It was good enough for the youth. (laughs) The youth paid attention. So I I don't want to guilt you into paying attention. I just want to encourage you into paying attention. Our youth were like riveted. Mm, I could hear them looking at me. Audible. It's like a laser. So re-engage and listen to Charles Hodge because you're going to have to pay attention to this. But it's beautiful. Okay, here's Charles Hodge's response. Our answer to the problem of evil in the world why God is both good and great. First of all, he says, rest in the simple statements of the Bible. It's a good place to start, but he develops three thoughts. And here's the first of those thoughts. I'm gonna try and sort of make sense of, help you make sense of them because the language of these is a little complex. The first, the glory of God is the end to which all other ends are subordinate to include promotion of holiness, And production of happiness. I'm going to read it again because you probably need a couple times to kind of hear this. And then I'm going to make an attempt to try and explain it. The glory of God is the end to which all other ends are subordinate to include the promotion of holiness and the production of happiness. Here's the way I would rephrase that. Your happiness and even your movement in the journey of holiness matters to God. But less so... Than his glory. Okay, that's the first thing. Kind of keep that. Maybe if you're a note taker, hopefully you've captured that. Here's the second thing. The self-manifestation of God. And I'm going to read these twice because I think they're important. The self-manifestation of God. The revelation of his infinite perfection being the highest conceivable or possible good. Is the ultimate end of all his works in creation, providence and redemption. Okay, I'm going to read it again, and I'm going to try and explain it. (laughs) The self-manifestation of God, the revelation of His infinite perfection, being the highest conceivable or possible good, is the ultimate end of all His works in creation, providence, and redemption. Ultimately, what God is doing when He's working events in in creation in the world is that He is about self-disclosing His goal is self-manifestation and self-revelation. And here's a little hint, a little just kind of keep you on the hook here. That might come at the expense of your happiness. Do you see that? It might come at the expense of your life. It might come at the expense of your freedom. It might come at the expense of your health. That God has disclosed and manifest. Okay, here's the third thing. Hopefully, here's where it really comes into focus for you. Okay, the third thing. This word is really going to... I hope this word doesn't send you spiraling. (laughs) I'm out. As sentient creatures. Okay, let me explain sentient. Sentient means as conscious, feeling creatures. As conscious, feeling creatures are necessary for the manifestation of God's benevolence. So there could be no manifestation of His mercy without misery. Are of his grace and justice if there were no sin. I'm gonna read it again. And man, I just, I hope you, maybe if you're a note taker, you can think on it. I've been thinking on it like, oh man, I really wanna dwell on this for a little while. Listen to this. As conscious feeling creatures are necessary for the manifestation of God's benevolence so that we recognize the need, so that we grow independent, so that we experience things like gratitude. Okay, we need to be sentient. We need to be conscious, feeling creatures to appreciate and enjoy his benevolence so there could be no manifestation of his mercy without also misery. What is mercy apart from misery? It's invisible. You've got to have misery for mercy. What is grace and justice if there were no sin? It, it doesn't exist apart from the absence of it. Here's some other visuals. No light without darkness. What even is light without darkness? No freedom without slavery. What even is freedom apart from enslavement? We're talking about something we can't conceptualize apart from the thing that's behind it, the dark thing, the dark and difficult thing behind it. Uh, Here's a here's a A scripture that sort of puts this thing in perspective. Just listen to this passage as it unfolds. Maybe a familiar passage for you from Romans 9. What if God, desiring to show his wrath and make known his power, has endured with much patience? Vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. See this backdrop of this dark wrath of God from a holy, just God. In order to, it says, to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory. Apart from the dark backdrop of wrath and justice and holiness, you can't appreciate the bright beauty of mercy and grace. Man, how do we make sense of evil in the world? I think this is heading in the right direction. Last thing from Charles Hodge, and this is this kind of hopefully kind of brings it all together. I hope. It says the knowledge of God is eternal life. Follow, follow me on this. John 17, 3 in the high priestly prayer where Jesus says at the supper and he's praying the prayer before he crosses the Kidron Valley to go to Gethsemane to be arrested. Hours before he's going to trials, hours before he's nailed to a cross, he prays for these followers of his around the table. And he says this, this is eternal life that they may know you. The one true God and Jesus, whom you have sent. See how we tend to treat eternal life is that knowing God is the means by which we get the carrot of eternal life. What this passage is telling us, and what Charles Hodges is telling us, is that knowing God is the carrot. Knowing God is synonymous with eternal life. So if you put that in perspective, then you realize oh, whatever he has to do in our lives to create a knowledge of God is the carrot. Though it might hurt, though it might be dark, though it might be like an evil that you experience, that's the good thing, is knowing Him. The knowledge of God is eternal life, and it is for creatures our highest good. The promotion of that knowledge, the manifestation of the manifold perfections of his infinite, of this infinite God, is the highest end of all His works. And knowing God may happen, and I would add, likely happens through the darkest and most difficult trials in your lives. And it's in and through those great evils and darknesses that his glory, his self-manifestation, his self-revelation, his benevolence, his grace, his mercy, and all those things are displayed and experienced and enjoyed. Man, it makes some sense of this darkness. Job will have some more answers for us as we move forward. And we'll see what God was up to in the life of at least one man through many evils and many darknesses. We can summarize it to say that the glories of chapter 42, if you've read ahead, and there's some glories of chapter 42, are only seen and experienced in the backdrop of 41 chapters of difficulty. So I have two questions for you to consider this morning. Brief questions. Here's the first. What could God be doing with our difficulties? You got to start there, and you got to start with this notion that God's doing it. That God is either ordaining or allowing the difficulties that we go through without being the author of sin all at the same time. We can say he's a good God. We can say that he's a great God. And we can say that there's evil in this world and he is either orla- or allowing or ordaining. You've got to start there. Job was living there, man. Look at all the he's in this passage. God has put me in the wrong. God has turned me upside down. He's closed his net about me. He has walled up my way. He has stripped me from my glory. He has set darkness upon my paths. He breaks me down on every side and I'm gone. He has pulled me up, my hope like a tree. He has kindled his wrath against me. His troops come on together around me and surround my tent. He puts it on God and God says of him, he didn't sin with his lips. He didn't misrepresent me. So, if you want to deal with the darkness in your lives, lives, the evils, you got to start with dealing with God. Stop blaming everything on the devil. (laughs) The devil is a chump compared to the living God. He has to ask God for permission to scratch his hiney. I see some smiles from the kids. Some adults could smile too, going, Yeah, yeah, devil. You're not omnipotent. You're a creature. We're in league with the creator. But let's start with the creator and say, okay, God, what are you doing with this? Shall we not accept good from God and also evil, catastrophe, disaster, darkness? God, you're doing this or you're allowing it. You're doing something here. Let's start right there and reckoning with, God, what are you up to? And the second question is, what do you believe to be God's highest good for you? As we've been moving through Job, what do you feel like is the highest good for Job? That he gets his stuff back? That he stops hurting? That's not what Job is hoping for. That's not what he's asking for. He had not asked for that yet. Take my pain away. Ouch. Give me my servants and my children back or whatever. Give me some critters. I want my stuff back. He's not saying that. He's saying, God, I want you. I want to see you. Man, to stay healthy? Do you believe that to be your highest good? Or do you believe your highest good to be to know and experience God? Man, I hope you'd answer right there. Let's pray. God, I pray that you, through this just dark story, dark experience of Job, would help us see that you are a good God. That you, through de- very difficult, very, very um, dark circumstances, create an environment where you truly are the hope of the world, the light of the world, truly our Redeemer. God, I pray that you would give us a place to make sense of evil. God, I pray that you would put in perspective Satan's role as just as an instrument. God, I pray that you would put him in perspective just as a creature and that we would look to you as creator and try and reckon with and claw after you in our dark and difficult struggles. God, I pray this morning, even if we're not going through personal struggles right now, that they may be equipping us to walk well with others who are going through struggles in the future. That we can claw Godward, that we can cry Godward. God, I pray that you would work that in us. God, I pray, too, that you would show us the greatest good is knowing you. Create that desire and that appetite and that hunger within us to just know you. Lord, I am thankful too that you use all manner of circumstances to include dark and difficult trials, maybe especially dark and difficult trials. I'm thankful you're not wasting them, and you're not capricious, and you're not hurtful, and you're not harmful, and you're not just messing with us, but you're actually using those to be a good father to us. We love you and we trust you. I pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. I told you, uh, John chapter 17, I mentioned mentioned briefly the context for John chapter 17 being the high priestly prayer that was likely prayed around the, the Lord's supper table. Right after the prayer, they said, okay, let's get up and let's cross the Kidron Valley. And they walked across the Kidron Valley to the Garden of Gethsemane. He's arrested and taken off to his trial. So it's likely at the supper that he shared those words this is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, you whom you have sent. What also happened in that prayer at that meal, he said, He's praying Godward, and it's the longest prayer in our Bible that we have from, from our Savior. It's really revealing what he's up to and what God's up to. And listen to what he says in verse 6 of chapter 7. He says, excuse me, 17. He said, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. See, that's what God's up to, self-manifestation, self-revelation. I've done what we do, God. I've done what we do, Father. Reveal ourselves. Disclose ourselves. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything you have given me is from you. Knowing. Now you see self-manifestation. You see knowing God, experiencing God. All of that takes place, especially in this dark hour of the cross. Man, it's not like this dark hour of the the arrest and the trials, the unjust trials and the crucifixion somehow um, was was an obstacle to knowing and experiencing God. It was the vehicle for knowing and experiencing and disclosing the perfections. And mercy and grace and glory of a good God. Man, the supper is a great place for us to remember that. The supper was a great place for him to pray that. It's a great place as we take the supper together to realize that it's through Christ's work in that darkest hour. The darkest Friday in history. Okay, We can hopefully agree. The darkest Friday in history that God's glory God's self-manifestation were most displayed. And it's through that hour that he became knowable. It's through that work that he became knowable for us by faith in Christ and union with Christ to experience and know God. We have been turned upside down by sin and slavery to sin and self and God in Christ righted us. He redeemed us. And we enjoy that every single week in the supper. Let me give you this this instruction with the supper. As we distribute these elements, we distribute a little piece of bread and a little cup of juice. And what we're doing there is we're enjoying our Savior and His work. And let me encourage you in this. Let me charge you in this. If you're not trusting Christ as your Savior and Lord, don't take this. If you are, though, if you're saying, Lord, I trust you, I'm I've placed my faith in this Savior. He's my Savior. Then I encourage you to take and eat and drink in faith. Let's distribute the elements.